pray that everything here would be in accordance to your will. We just ask that you'd hide Brother Ben behind the uh, cross this now. That, Lord, he would feel free to speak the word, the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For leading this morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in First Peter. We've been slowly working our way through this book. We're going to be in chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12 is what we're going to cover. This was written by Peter to a group of elect exiles that have been dispersed across Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And what's interesting about this passage that we come to today is it's Peter just quoting Psalm 34. So maybe, uh, anybody ever heard the name Jim Elliot? <laughs> we got one. Good job, Tina. Uh, Tina and I, the readers, we know Jim Elliot, so she knows it's going to be good. Jim Elliot and four other young men in the 1950s set out to be missionaries in Ecuador. Uh, they found a tribe in the Amazon that had never heard the name of Jesus before. And so they wanted to visit them, but this tribe had a reputation. Uh, it had killed everybody who had tried to come and visit them. And so Jim and these four other men uh, landed in Ecuador. I believe they work with, uh, they were with or, or helping MAF, uh, which is who Dave and Jill Holmes, uh, missionaries we support, do. But they landed there, um, and it wasn't long until uh, their worst nightmares were realized. About a week or so later, uh, the bodies of all five of those men who went were found floating in the river. So Jim left a wife and a 10-month-old baby uh, behind Elizabeth Elliot, her name. It became a national story at the time. Time Magazine did a 10-page cover on it. It took over a lot of news coverage because it confused a lot of people on why Jim would leave a young wife and a young baby behind to go do something so dangerous and so reckless. But his wife, Elizabeth, was not confused. In fact, Elizabeth and another widow uh, from the same deal took their kid, their 10-month-old baby, and they went into the tribe that had just killed her husband. And began visiting with uh, Jesus, and she ministered for two years to that tribe. Many of those uh, people were converted to Christianity because of her her sacrifice and her husband's sacrifice. Why? What would compel somebody to do something like that? There's been books written about this story. There's been movies written. I first heard it. (laughs) This is just some of you, so it'll be okay. The first Christian concert I ever went to was Stephen Curtis Chapman. Uh, and they had one of the guys from the tribes at this. That was the first time I heard this story. So in Amarillo, Texas, this guy's there, and I'm like, this is just a a crazy story, and it confused me. Why would you have a a young wife and a young child that you would leave behind to go do something that spelled, like if you just look at it on paper, these people kill people, so stay away from them. But that's not what Jim and the others did. And why would your wife, who just had lost your husband, take your 10-month-old daughter and go minister to these kinds of people? What's happening? What would compel somebody to do something like this? Well, there's a famous quote from Jim Elliott that I want to read before we read First uh, Peter three ten through 12, which is going to help us kind of see the idea that's happening here. He said, He is no fool who, uh, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Peter, quoting Psalm 34, says this in First Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. For the one who wants to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and to do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. 
if, if we step back and just look at the context of Peter, Peter's, again, talking to these exiles who are scattered across Asia Minor. They're, they're not exiles in the sense they're cast off. They're exiles because they're Christians and they're living in this world that, that's subtly starting to persecute them, and that persecution's going to ramp up. And so Peter reminds them that you've been saved as the Father planned. The Son accomplished this salvation, and this salvation is applied by the Holy Spirit, that it's a Trinitarian effort. And though this letter is not written to individual churches, it's written to all these churches in general where these believers would gather together and they's under Roman rule, they're socially being persecuted. There's going to be some persecution that, that ramps up soon. And so the Holy Spirit, using Peter to write to these churches to remember your salvation, remember that the Word of God is what lasts forever. And so live that salvation, live that gospel, live that Word of God out so that those unbelievers who are persecuting you might see the gospel in action in your life and cause them to be stirred and move towards Christ. So Peter tells us last week we looked at the, the two verses before, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. Instead, when someone does evil to you, you, you do good. You're blessed. We're saved. We've been saved by Jesus Christ. We have this gospel not for, for, for a purpose, for a reason. We've been blessed so that we can be a blessing to others. And we recognize that Jesus is the ultimate blessing for us. And so then Peter quotes this psalm. And so I want to pray, and then I want to look at, at what this psalm says, and then how Peter interprets it, and then how we can understand it as well. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, I pray that you would help us to want to love life, and to see good days, and to understand, God, that what that means is that our, our life that we want, Father, is in your hands. And good days, God, are good as you define them, not as us. Help keep our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. We know that your word tells us, God, that what comes out of our mouth is, is the overflow of our heart. Pray that you would grow our heart in you and in the gospel. Help us to turn away from evil, to do what is God. God, we know we're not saved by good works, but we're saved to do good works for your glory. Help us to keep that in mind, to be centered on the gospel. Help us to seek peace and to pursue it first and foremost with you, but then with our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, we know that your eyes are on the righteous and that your ears are open to our prayers. Help us to rest in the righteousness of Christ. God, we know that your face is against those who do what is evil, which means it's towards those who trust in you and believe in the gospel of Jesus. Help us to grow in you this morning, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. I want to start by, by just looking at the Psalm 34. Uh, David wrote this psalm, and he wrote it at a time in his life which is very difficult, a, a dire situation which David is, is in. The story is told to us in 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15. But to really understand the psalm, I don't know how much of David's life you know or you don't know. David, uh, if you know the story of King David, it's phenomenal. It starts really with the Israelites being led by Joseph, who, who took over Egypt. They're in the Promised Land, and they're this little military might, this little power that's going around, and they're destroying these massive walls like at Jericho where the God uses them. They're defeating all sorts of enemies. They're walking through this promised land and then all of a sudden these people in this promised land are hearing about how the God of these Israelites led them out of slavery in Egypt. How they, uh, the God of these Israelites is knocking down walls. They have this little army of people, this nation that's traveling around. And then as they begin to settle, as they begin to put roots down, what tends to happen in, in our lives and in theirs is they become content. 
They get comfortable. And so they look at the nations around them and they realize, well, all of these nations have kings, but we don't. And God had sent them some judges who some would do some good things and some would do some bad things and kind of led the Israelites. But the ultimate reality was God was the king. God was the ruler. But what they wanted was somebody that they could look to, a human. Be careful what you pray for. Sometimes the Lord will give it to you. And so God grants them a king and he grants them a guy who looks like a king. Saul. Strong, tall. I think I'm much like Saul in those areas. Good looking. At this time, kings were your best at fighting. So you wanted a king who was big. You wanted a king who was strong. You wanted a king who could wield a sword and help defend your family, your nation. And so the start of Saul's reign doesn't start bad. It starts out good. Saul does a good job, but quickly what ends up happening is Saul sins in a way where God removes the spirit from Saul. Saul uh, was losing a battle, and Samuel the priest who God gave right king, and then he has this prophet priest Samuel who comes in. Saul's losing the battle. The people are scared. They're hiding. And so Saul's waiting for Samuel to come and do a burnt offering to the Lord, but Samuel gets delayed. Saul's not uh, content with God's timing on this, and so Saul then offers the offering to God instead of Samuel. And so when Samuel gets there, It's this big issue. And ever since that point in Saul's life, God moves the spirit off of Saul, and uh, Saul then struggles as a king. And so what Samuel does is he leaves, and God says, I want you to go to this guy named Jesse's house. He has these sons, and one of the sons is going to be the next king over Israel. And so Samuel goes to Jesse's house. Jesse only brings nine sons. He brings the nine sons who look the best, who look like the king, the tallest, the strongest, the the best-looking ones. And God looks at Samuel and says, none of those nine are going to be the king, which has got to be confusing for Samuel because he goes to Jesse, and he's like, did you not bring a son? And Jesse's like, well, I have one son, but he's like the shepherd. And so he goes and gets David. I'm sure he dusts him off, tells him, get your stuff together, get over here, and go see Samuel's here. And when David shows up, the Lord says, this is the one who will be the king. And if you read Samuel, the next story that happens is David and Goliath. So he's got the anointing of God. He's the anointed king of Israel, although Saul is the actual king who's ruling on the throne. And what we see... Saul doing is he's scared of of Goliath. And so we know the story. David comes in. He picks stones. He defeats Goliath. He leads all that. So what happens is David's notoriety builds with the Israelites. They would sing songs like Saul kills thousands, but David comes and he kills tens of thousands. So this irritates Saul. He gets scared of David. And so multiple times he tries to kill David, which is ironic because it's David playing the liar that would soothe Saul. Saul's best, his son ends up being David's best friend with Jonathan. And so it goes through time where it learns that David and Jonathan realize, like, Saul genuinely wants to kill David. And so David flees, and he runs. He ends up in this place called Gath, which is a Philistine city. And the Philistines were like the enemies of the Israelites this time. Goliath was a Philistine. That's the army that David kept killing over and over. And so David tries to inconspicuously, like, go into this town because he thinks the last place Saul will look for me is in the city of the Philistines. And so he walks in, and the first thing that happens is they go, isn't that David who kills, like, 10,000? of us when Saul only kills 1,000. He's good at being king. He's bad at disguising. And so immediately David is caught in an extremely hard spot. Two kings, both wanting to kill him. Running. His best friend, Jonathan, isn't with him. He's, he's with Saul. He's alone. The scripture tells us that he's afraid. 
And so what David does is he acts crazy. He begins to write on the door of the gate. It says he lets drool come drip down his beard. Like he acts like a crazy person. And the king, I want to read the response to you because I think the king's response is just such a good one. It fits our church well. Uh, Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? And so the king is like, I don't need another one of these. Get him out of here. Like... (laughs) To me, it's, it's a shot at your own people, isn't it? We're weird enough. Let's not let David drag us down. And so David flees. It's that story of David pretending to act insane that Psalm 34 is written about. David writing that psalm, thinking about that story. It's not a long psalm, so I want to read it all to you, and especially in the context of 1 Peter uh, so so uh, remember, David's fleed this situation. He's petrified of this king. He's, he's afraid, and he uses this odd tactic, which is wise, but it's weird nonetheless. He's running from Saul. He's trying to hide. He doesn't have John. He's alone. He's between this rock and this hard place. Listen to what David says about this kind of situation. I will bless the Lord at all times. I will praise him. Uh, his praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's right word, and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. The poor, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Peter's already quoted that verse in this letter. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. Those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And this is where Peter quotes it for for the text we're in. Who is someone who desires life, a loving, a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Oh, man, it froze. One second. Uh, There we are. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory from them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and he rescues them from their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversaries, and the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones, not a one of them is broken, and even brings death to the wicked, to those who hate the righteousness will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all those who take refuge in him will be punished. How can David sing that psalm? How can David pray that prayer when he's being chased by Saul, the king, and he's being chased and being uh, this other king that he snuck into, this whole uh, nation that's wanting to kill him? How can he sing that psalm? He's alone. He's afraid. He's on the run. He's the anointed king, yet the king who's above him is trying to kill him and to attack him. What David knows 
And, and what this psalm talks about is he's holding two truths together. The first half of this psalm is about praising God, enjoying God. And the second half is about fearing God. And those two things go hand in hand. Saul dies in, in Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 31, so 10 chapters after this incident. And 2 Samuel opens with David, and David is not celebrating Saul's death, he's mourning it. And he's now the fully inaugurated king of Israel. So how can David pray this psalm with this circumstance happening around him? I mean, he spends a long time running from Saul, has opportunities to kill King Saul, and he never takes them. He trusts God. Maybe David knows something that we miss. If, if I'm the rightful king of Israel and I know that I can kill the king who's on the throne, I don't think I'm going to write Psalm 34. Talking about enjoying God and rescuing us from all of our enemies. About fearing God, obeying God. Right, like what David does is he, he looks like he's, he's drooling, he's scribbling on the gate, he's acting insane. What our culture would tell David in that moment is, you seize your opportunity. God has made you king. You're anointed king, so go take your throne. You have a sword. Go kill Saul. Become the king that God has called you to be. But that's not what David does. Why? Because David understands who his real enemy is. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So if we, then we look to First Peter chapter 3, verse 10 through uh, 12, what we'll see is it's just a section of Psalm 34. But remember the circumstance that Peter is writing to. These people are being persecuted, and more intense persecution is coming in their days. In fact, Peter writes this letter, uh, and then he was killed by the persecution he's warning these people about, probably two to four years after he penned First Peter. Right? Pins it, puts the stamp on it, drops it in the envelope, and then he's going to be killed two to four years. So look at verse 10. Let, let's see what Peter says, how he repeats it. The, the one who wants to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Love life and see good days is what Peter says to these persecuted people. Love life is more than just simply enduring life. As if it's a burden that we have to just kind of get through until the next stage. Loving life means more than simply trying to escape life. As if it's a battle or something that we just kind of have to do with until the Lord can bring us home. Loving life means that we enjoy life. And certainly this means looking forward to being fully and completely with Jesus. But the gospel isn't some abstract principle that we take a hold of and then we sit on our blessed assurances and do nothing with until Jesus comes back. Much of the gospel is about what the Lord is going to do, but much of the gospel is also about what the Lord is doing right now. How he's taking our hearts and changing them. David learned this in a cave running from Saul. Peter learned this in Rome, knowing that inevitably his death was on the doorstep. These exiles that have been dispersed uh, are learning this as persecution is being ramped up, and many of them are going to lose their lives and their livelihood. 
We struggle because our modern day version of Christianity is that Jesus is a God who never wants anything bad to happen to us. And so if you pray the right way, if you say amen enough, if you say God's name in prayer enough, then you can get whatever you want out of prayer and out of God. God can be commanded. God can be swayed. In fact, any problem you have is not really your fault. It's probably some external force that's pushing on you that's causing these things to happen to you. Brothers and sisters, that's not the God of the Bible. Ultimately, that God that we're talking about is just us. Jesus is God, and we are called to enjoy God and to fear God. Those things go hand in hand. And we have value and we have worth as human beings because we are created in the image of God, but your value and your worth are directly tied to God, not to our awesomeness. So loving life and seeing good days doesn't come from cutting out all the haters in life but from understanding the nature of our enemies. Keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit. I want to read to you Luke chapter 6, verse 43 through 46a. A good tree does not produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes or grapes picked from bramble bush. The person who produces good out of a good stored up in his heart and an evil producing person produces evil out of the evil stored up from his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. So how do you keep your tongue from evil? How do you keep your lips from speaking deceit? How do you turn from evil and to do what is good? The Bible is clear. It's not external actions that we cling to and we hold to. It's this internal reality of the gospel on our hearts. It's not about external issues going on. The reality is the result, this evil that the Bible is talking about is not always external. In fact, it's internal. It's not outside of us. Now, there's certainly evil outside of us, right? But it's not exclusively outside of us. By and large, we have to understand our hearts and that our sinful, fallen nature has plagued our hearts. This comes right after Peter says, you need to be, you are blessed to be a blessing. So, so you're saved if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but not to sit like we were, right? To go do things, to be a blessing for other people until Jesus comes back. That is good. Blessed is a hijacked word. It's not about monetary growth. It's not about getting a bigger house. It's not about better uh, car. It's not about more kids or better behaved kids. It's not about a better spouse or more behaved spouse, however you want to think of that. It's, that's not the blessing Peter's talking about here. It's a blessing that we've been given that we could absolutely never earn. The grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Who are we to be unforgiving to those who've wronged us to do hard-hearted and prideful if we don't seek forgiveness for those who've wronged us, right? If we understand our hearts and our sinful nature that dwells within inside of us, if we understand that this is where so much of our life is located is inside of our heart, and the Lord has granted mercy and grace and lavished that upon us, then who are we to withhold forgiveness to others? That's what Peter's getting at. You're blessed a blessing. This means that our hearts have to be humbled by the Lord, softened, 
that we don't return evil for evil, that instead we've been freed from the captivity of sin so that revenge isn't as appealing to us as maybe it used to be. Our words are not separate from our heart. What you say reveals about where your heart is. This is why gossip is such a dangerous sin within the church. It feels innocent, and if we're honest, it's kind of enjoyable. But it reveals a heart that would rather talk about somebody's issue than help that person grow in Christ. What you say matters, not because your words have have power or don't have power, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but your words will never hurt me. That's not true. Sometimes words hurt. Sometimes they don't. The reality is they reveal your heart, is what Scripture teaches us. Works by and large, words by and large spoken by unbelievers are not meant to unify and certainly not meant to unify around the gospel and be peaceful, but they're rather meant to destroy. You destroy what you don't like so that you can build what you do like. And so we'll put others down because in our heart we want to be better than them. But those who have been blessed to be a blessing seek peace and we pursue peace. Peace with God first and foremost peace with others as a result of our peace with God. Our words reveal our heart, which means our words reveal if we really truly love one another or not. Or as we define, and we define love at our house as if you, you want what's best for someone else. Why? Why should we live like that? Verse 12. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Words that seek peace from come, come from a heart that is righteous and God sees the heart and only God genuinely and truly sees the heart. When Samuel was visiting Jesse and was, was about to pick one of his sons to be anointed as the new king, this is what God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel sixteen seven. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees for humans see what is visible. Here's the prayers of the righteous. In Psalm 34, David said God hears their cries for help. It's a change, right? Peter is saying when he says he hears their cry for help, it's hears their prayers. Peter's reinterpreting the Psalms to say they're talking about prayer here, communicating with God. We've seen prayers be hindered in 1 Peter before. The husband who isn't loving his wife is at risk of God not hearing his prayers. God sees the righteous, he hears the prayers of the righteous, and the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So how can we be righteous? By understanding that we cannot be righteous. By understanding that our heart, which is where the words flow from, is broken. That our hearts are not righteous. That sin has been uh, not only brought in from the evil outside of us, but it dwells, it's inside of us, and it works outward as well. Our hearts are not innocent. This is how David can sing this psalm and can pray this while he's running from King Saul and King of Gath. This is why David can be scared for his life, sleeping on a dirt floor in a cave, trying to avoid the king of Israel just to stay alive, just to scrounge up enough things to eat, yet also say, enjoy God and fear God. Because David knows that our enemy in life is more than simply an angry king or two. What are they going to do to us? Our biggest issue is much worse than angry Saul who's bad aim with the spear. Or a vengeful king who thinks David's insane. 
Peter can quote this psalm while he's staring at the wood being cut down that's going to build the cross that's going to carry him. Peter could have written and said, listen, I've got to lay low for a little while. So I'm going to write you this letter, and then I'm going to go hang out somewhere else where the persecution is going to calm down. Uh, Peter's pretty important to the early church. This is Peter, the apostle Peter, the first one called to follow after Jesus, the one who speaks more in the Gospels than any of the other disciples, the leader of the apostles, the leader of the church at Jerusalem. This is Peter who walks on water with Jesus. This is Peter who two different times was a bad fisherman, but Jesus fixed his fishing habit by casting the net on the other side. This is Peter who's with Jesus at the upper room. This is Peter who's one of the three that's taken to see Jesus in the transfiguration where God shows himself with, with glory and says, this is Jesus, my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This is Peter who's in the garden with Jesus, supposed to be praying, but instead he's sleeping when Jesus is is praying uh, to the Father, dripping blood because he's in such agony. This is Peter who rejects Jesus three times, one time to a little girl when Jesus is being crucified. This is Peter who looks and he sees Jesus cooking breakfast for him, and so he puts on his coat and he dives in the water and he swims to talk to Jesus. It's that Peter that we're talking about here. And Peter doesn't say, I'm so important, I've got to get away and hide for a little bit. Instead, what Peter says is, Jesus is more important than me. Instead, Peter says, enjoy God and fear God no matter what comes. How can he say that in these circumstances? Church history tells us that, Jesus, that Peter was killed two to four years later, that he watched his wife be crucified first, and then he was crucified upside down because he didn't see fit to be murdered the same way that Jesus was. How can Peter say, enjoy God and fear God and not fight back? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And we know Peter struggled with this. Peter's the one who swings the sword in the garden when Jesus is being arrested and cuts off the, the soldier's ear. That's that Peter. This is Peter that he's writing to these people. How can he write to these people and say, hey, persecution's coming, keep gathering. Even though persecution's going to be ramped up, you keep gathering together. He doesn't say whisper the songs when you gather so that they can't hear you. But the point, I mean, just think about these house churches that that are taking place that Peter's writing this to. If somebody missed the church service, it would not be assumed that they were alive. They probably got caught, they probably got found, they're either imprisoned or they're killed. And Peter is saying, enjoy God and fear God in the midst of that. Because this is what they understand that you and I so often miss. Our biggest enemy, our biggest adversary that you and I need to be rescued from is our own sinfulness. We are not righteous. Yet the gospel makes a way. The good news of Jesus is not that Jesus came and he gave us these 12 steps to follow so that we can climb our way up to righteousness. The gospel is news, and it's good news. It's not something that we do. It's something that was proclaimed in the past, and it's presented to you with present, like we're saved. The gospel happens in the past, but it has present implications for you and I. We're not righteous, but Jesus is. 
And so when Jesus goes to the cross, not to pay for his sins, he did not sin, he's innocent, but to pay for ours. He takes the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our rebellion and for our sin. He bears it in full and completely. The punishment that you and I deserve in eternity in hell, Jesus takes and takes the wrath of God for us. And because of this, we're given grace and we're given mercy by Jesus. God's justice is satisfied because sin has been punished. So at the same time, right, that gives us this clean slate that we now can work with if we're believers in Jesus Christ. But our sinful heart means that we're going to mess that slate up. And so what Jesus does at the same time is he credits us with his righteousness. It's an imputed righteousness. So when Jesus sees us, he sees his, uh, when God sees us, he sees his son's righteousness. And so God sees the righteous and he hears our prayers. We're counted as just. We're counted as righteous. And we're being made more righteous every day. And so slowly over time, as we mature in faith through reading the word, through prayer, through gathering regularly, our hearts become less and less unrighteous and more and more righteous like Christ's. So how can David pray Psalm 34? How can Peter pray Psalm 34? How can these these elect exiles that have been dispersed and being persecuted pray Psalm 34 the same way that you and I can pray Psalm 34? By understanding what Jesus has done for us. That the love of God lavished upon you and I by basking in the gospel of Jesus, by understanding that it's Jesus who makes me righteous. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So this question, this passage begs us to ask a few questions. And one of them is, what is most important to us? If your personal life is is gospel-centered, is is the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus the most impactful, the most important, the most central thing to your identity? Is Christ and Him crucified the driving force between every decision that you make and how you lead your family and how you serve the church? If if Jesus is in my place, Jesus is is living the life, Jesus lived the life that I should have lived, he died the death that I deserve. We like is that the central thought in my head throughout the day? Is the righteousness of Christ taking me where I'm at and challenging me to grow in Jesus more and more every day, like today and tomorrow and Tuesday and the rest of the days of the week? Or is life simply about getting through? See, ultimately, isn't that what Peter's talking about, how to live the good life? Is it just about surviving? Is it just about checking the boxes? I got Jesus today, check. Now I can go take a nap, check. And then I'm going to eat some food that's not healthy, but it's a Super Bowl, so check. There is more to life than simply existing. The secret to a good life, to enjoy the days, is to understand what David and what Peter and what these exiles and what Jim and Elizabeth Elliot understood that he is no fool who uh, gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So, brothers and sisters, if you're believers in Jesus Christ, have you strayed from the gospel? The beauty of the gospel is we, we all come to Jesus at various points in our spiritual life and in our physical life. 
We all come to Jesus at different places in our, our journey. So the question you have to ask if you're, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ is not, okay, well, well, now where do I have to serve? What do I have to do? But it's rather, where am I at and how can I grow in Jesus a little bit more? How can I set my life up, do the disciplines in a certain way, not to earn the salvation from Christ, but to bask in this gospel more and more? How can I be more like Christ tomorrow than I am today? We can repent of sin. We can rest in the gospel of Jesus. There's guilt and there's shame that always comes with sin. And the beauty of the gospel is his mercy is more than our sin. We can read God's word consistently. We can pray. We can serve. We can prioritize the most important things over the secondary things. For unbelievers, passages like this, especially in our part of the world, are hard because one of the things we tend to do is we look at it and we say, okay, I want to love life. I want to have good days, so what do I need to do? I need to keep my tongue from evil. For me, that means I'm just not going to be allowed to talk. I'm going to keep my lips from speaking deceit. Okay, uh, again, I'm just going to have to be quiet for most of my life from now on. What we tend to do is we'll take passages like this and we'll say, if I do these things, then I get this. I get the good life and I get to love life. And that's not what Peter is saying. Peter is saying the heart that's been saved by God, the heart that's centered on the gospel, the heart that is covered by the righteousness of Christ is going to do these things. The point is to focus on Jesus, not changing. Your, right? When you renewed, right? when the Lord saves us, we get new affections, we get new desires, we get new emotions. Not all of them, we're not completely cleaned at that moment, right? Anybody still sinners and still a believer? Nobody? But we're growing that way. This is not a text that says if you do these things, then you get Jesus and you get salvation. So you can't white knuckle it. This is hard. This is hard in Scurry County. This is hard in Ira because we are by and large people who want to earn things. We don't want things to be given to us. But you can't just cling to this and try to correct your life on your own this way. It will shatter you. What you need is the gospel. The gift of salvation, the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace is grace because it's unearned. If grace was earned, it's justice, it's not grace. We need the mercy that comes from repenting and believing in Jesus and understanding that whatever sins we've done, wherever our hearts are at, his mercy is more. We rest in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, help us to want to love life and to see good days. And help us to understand, God, that to do that, it's not about works or efforts or things that we do, God. It's about us resting in your good news, in the life, the death, and the resurrection of you, Jesus. God, the way we keep our tongues from evil, the way that we keep our lips from deceit, the way that we turn from evil and do what is good, the way that we seek peace and pursue it, God, the way we understand that your eyes are on the righteous, the way that we're made righteous, the way that you hear our prayers is not by what we do, but us basking what you've done. You died in our place. Help us, Father, to grow in your gospel this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.
If you'll stand, Daryl and Tina are going to lead us in a song of response.